And uh, we're going to continue on in our, our series of Passion for Purity, which is really a, a subsection of the larger series, just about leadership. And what does it mean to be a godly leader, to be a godly man? And what are the habits and disciplines of godly men who are able to lead their families, uh, to be leaders in the workplace, and to be leaders in the world for the sake of Christ? So I'm excited about our time this morning. This is part three of four. I'll finish up this series next time. But let's begin with a word of prayer. And then we will dive in. Lord, it's a privilege to be able to gather together as men and encourage each other to be iron sharpening iron. And it's, it's my prayer that you would use our time to that end, that you would glorify yourself through this time, but you would also mold us each uh, into to men that more closely align with your character. Help us in, in this fallen world not to, to fall prey to the many temptations that are around us in, in many areas, but particularly in the area of, of sexual immorality. Help us to guard our eyes and our minds. For those of us that are married, help us to guard our marriages, um, to love our wives and serve them and be devoted to them so that we might uh, be men that are, that are pleasing to you and that have a witness uh, for the sake of the gospel in the world. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As we've said many times in this series, if we want to be men who can lead in the world, we have to be men of purity. Uh, we cannot live a life of contradiction in which we preach a gospel that changes lives and then live as if that is not true in the privacy of our own homes. As we talked about last time, uh, God has a good plan for sexuality. If you haven't uh, had time to listen to the, the last couple of messages, I encourage you to go do that. We've looked at the command for purity, that the Bible gives a clear command for uh, us to be men of purity. And then last time we looked at the standard for purity. and We talked about both the positive and the negative in the sense of the restrictions that are there. Positively, God has given us the gift of marriage. And sexuality is good and to be rejoiced in, in what God has given us in the covenant of marriage. Outside of that, the Bible calls us to be pure in, in three particular areas, to be sexually pure with our physical bodies, to be sexually pure with our eyes and mind, we kind of put those together, and then sexually pure in our speech. Really, it's a, it's a holistic view of purity. We're to be pure from the inside out. Uh, we looked at Ephesians 5, verse 3, that says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. That's, that's pretty exhaustive. Any immorality or, or impurity and greed here in the context of, of, of coveting sexually must not even be named among us. Now, I think that's pretty clear. that God calls every believer to walk in sexual purity. I don't think any of you came in here uh, thinking something different than that. But I think it's important for us to remind ourselves of exactly what God's standard is, particularly as the world's standard begins to change on what seems like a weekly basis uh, in a sliding scale of what's now accepted and what's not and what's even to be celebrated and what's not according to the world's opinion. We can't uh, be too careful to remind ourselves to be rooted, to be concrete in our belief of what the Bible says that God's standard is in this area of sexuality. So today, we're going to look at the battle for purity, the battle for purity, and then next time we'll look at walking in purity. Next time, just as a preview, we're going to really think through the things we've been talking about on Sunday mornings on putting off, renewing our mind and putting on, and apply that very practically to this particular area. This week, when, I, when I'm talking about the battle for purity, I want us to understand where the battle lies and what enemies we face in this battle. Because I think a lot of times Christians, especially those who are immature in their faith, they, they, they don't understand even the battle that we're engaged in or where the attacks come from. And so they're kind of like a, like a mouse that's been placed into a snake's cage, you know, a mouse that's meant to feed a pet snake. They put the mouse goes into that cage and he begins to sniff around. He's blissfully unaware that there's even danger there. He sees none of the danger signs that there's a snake in the cage. And while he's going about his business, snatch, he's gone. I think a lot of believers, if they're not careful, if they're, if they're not diligent to, to learn the truth and to understand the dangers that exist and where the battlefield is, 
They walk in blindly as if we're not even in a battle. And, and they can't understand why they keep stumbling into sin and why they keep falling prey to the schemes of the enemy. So I want us to spend our time understanding that the Bible lays out our battle and our enemy as really three, three enemies that we face on a daily basis um, when we think about sin. The Bible puts them in these categories, the flesh, the world, and the devil. The flesh, the world, and the devil. And we see these laid out in, in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, we, we typically go there to talk about the unconverted man, what our life was like before Christ. And certainly that's appropriate. But notice he mentions all three of these enemies in these three verses. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. That's, that's the world system according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We have all three of these enemies there. He mentions in verse 2, according to the course of this world, and then he mentions really the, the world system again at the end of verse 2 of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, that is the individuals that make up the world, in between, sandwiched in between those statements according to the prince of the power of the air, which was a reference to Satan, and then of course living in the lust of our flesh, the third reality. And what we're going to see is this close connection between the, as he calls it here, the prince of the power of the air and the sons of disobedience. While they are, in a sense, two separate categories, they overlap because the primary way that Satan tempts us is, is not coming to us individually and, and dangling something in front of us like he did to, to Eve in the garden, although he, he can do that, but that's, that's not the primary way that we're going to be individually tempted by Satan. It's going to be through his influence in the world system. That's why it says there in, in verse 2, according to the course of this world. That is, think of the world as this this, this fallen place that's sort of like a, a machine that Satan is at the helm of driving the bus. And that's why we see the world continually in this downgrade of sin and, and going into progressive, deeper levels of sin. So we have all three of those, and I want us to take them in turn this morning and look at them individually and then talk about some of the implications of understanding our enemy. But that's really the big idea. I want you to know your enemy because until then, uh, you, you don't even know exactly where the temptations lie or where the, the grenades and the bombs are that you need to be careful not to step on. So I'm going to take these in order. We're going to look first at the devil himself, or our, our, our chief enemy, the enemy of God. We'll see this in Ephesians chapter 6. Turn with me to Ephesians 6. It's the passage on the armor of God. But remember why Paul even goes into the need for the armor of God. It's because of the kind of enemy that we face. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The armor of God is necessary because we're not fighting a, a, a war that's hand and fist, that's flesh and blood. We're fighting a war that is a spiritual war, and we have a spiritual enemy, and he is a real enemy. Um, this, these descriptions here of, of uh, rulers and powers and world forces of darkness... Uh, these are probably different ranks of, of fallen angels. Satan and those, those angels that follow him that he uses to accomplish his rebellion against God. When we think about the activity of Satan and the, how the scripture describes Satan and what he does, MacArthur helps us by sort of putting this in summary fashion. Here are some of the things that the scripture refers to Satan as doing. Scripture depicts him as opposing God's work in Zechariah 3.1, perverting God's word in Matthew 4.6, hindering God's servant 
in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, hindering the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, snaring the righteous, 1 Timothy 3.7, and holding the world in his power, 1 John 5.19. This is how Satan works in the world. But it's important to say, uh, the reason we don't talk about Satan all that much is because I don't want to minimize the fact that he is a real enemy. He is, obviously. We just saw it in Ephesians chapter 6. But, of course, we have to understand that in comparison to God, his power is, is tiny, right? In comparison to us, his power is great. In comparison to our God, he is, he is nothing. And the battle <coughs> or the war is already decided, right? We, we know how the war ends. Jesus is king and he will reign. But for a time... He is allowed in his providence and for his sovereign purposes, he has allowed Satan to have this influence on the world system. And so he is a real enemy that we face. But we have to always keep in mind and take heart that while we face him and, and, and the effects of his reign, if you will, temporarily over the world system, uh, we serve the winning side. We serve the master of the universe who's in full control. But one of the ways that this connects to our series on purity and one of the ways that we may feel this, uh, this enemy in coming days is, is through persecution. Persecution is not something that the church in America has, has faced on the large scale uh, in our history. But all the signs lead to, and I don't mean signs in like some kind of strange mystical way, I just mean watching the news, um, lead towards the, the, the fact that persecution is, 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 is coming. If things continue down this trend, and particularly this intersects our issue, because I think the area that we're most likely to experience this here is over issues of sexuality, right? The, the, the world is, is now moving towards this sliding scale of sexuality in which really all things are permissible, not even permissible, but becoming celebrated. Things that that were not even discussed in back alleys, you know, 50 years ago, now are, are paraded on the headlines as good. And the next step after a culture begins to say that things are not only acceptable but to be celebrated is to persecute those or to call them hateful and, and uh, because they don't agree. And, of course, in the church we can't agree and won't agree to the world's standards. And so I think it's very likely that we may, in our lifetime, experience persecution over these issues of sexuality and, and perhaps others as well. We don't need to be afraid of that, but I do think that's one of the ways, one of the primary ways that Satan works in the world, and we may face that in our lifetime. But again, we have the King of Kings on our side. And so whatever Satan throws at us, we trust the Lord and his sovereignty, but he is a real enemy and we are foolish if we walk out into the world and think he's not and act as if he's not out to ensnare us and to ruin our families, to ruin our church. Um, he would love nothing more than to split this church or to allow, to tempt us through cultural pressure to compromise. Or we just say, you know, isn't it better to be able to keep our doors open and we'll just, you know, we'll just kind of change our stance on this and, and that allow us to remain as a church. Isn't that good? Well, no, it's not good if we compromise the clear teaching of the Word of God, and we won't do that. Now, there's a second enemy that's related to Satan, and that is the world. Enemy number two, the world system. We saw this again in Ephesians chapter 2, according to the course of this world, and he calls them the sons of disobedience. This is a, this is a world, as you know, that since the fall has been in rebellion against God, and Satan is the bus driver, if you will, but the bus that he's driving is this world system all around us. <clears throat> the devil is, is, is one being. He's not omnipresent. He's not, he's not like God. I think some people think of him in that way. He's not. He's in one place at one time. And so the way that he can affect us all at the same time is by dominating the world system so that the world is under his sway, begins to rebel against God in a universal sense, so that no matter where you live, you're surrounded by this system. We are in the world, but not of the world, Paul says. Now, I want to look at the effect of how this world system works and the effect on morality that takes place over time. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, we're going to read through verse 32, describes this progression very well. 
This is a passage you're likely familiar with. But Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore... God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now there's so much in that passage, and we unfortunately see so much of it playing out in our own culture today. But I want you to notice where it all began back in verse 18. How did it describe these unrighteous men? They are those who do what? Suppress the truth truth in unrighteousness. So right there we have, yes, the dual reality. Satan is the bus driver of of the world system, but that does not mean men are not responsible for their individual choices of rebellion against God. The, the reason the world is in this mess is ultimately not because of Satan, though he was the tempter. It's because man willfully chose to rebel against God and continues to willfully rebel against God by suppressing what is obvious. Sometimes I, I wonder, I look out my window with a cup of coffee and the sun's rising or whatever, and it's just it's a glorious sky, just <clears throat> screaming the glory of God that there is a creator, right? And you just wonder how. How can people not, not see that? Now, I understand theology and the dead and their sin and all those things, but you, it's so obvious. And that's what Paul is saying here is God has made it obvious through what he has made. Creation is declaring the glories of God. That's Psalm 19. The heavens are declaring the glories of God. And so it's, it's very obvious the only way that the world can get into the state that it's in is by people suppressing the truth. It's like a beach ball when you're a kid and you put it under the water and try to stand on it. You ever try to do that? And it's constantly doing this and it would pop back up. That's exactly what they're doing. They know what they're doing. Now at different levels, depending on what they've been taught, but even by their own conscience, they know that they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And what is part of the sliding scale that happens when God removes his hand of restraint and allows people to have what they want. Did you notice that? First, it began with idolatry, right? They, they, they gave up God and started worshiping images. But what was the second area of sin that took a, a turn for the worse? Degrading passions. Yeah, sexuality, right? We see this, this turn in sexuality. Of course, there um, he's describing homosexuality for both men and women, um, and then he goes on, to, of course, to this whole list of long list of, of different kinds of sins that become commonplace. And, and here is here is sort of the final stage of this in verse 32. Although they know the ordinance of God, so they know what God de- declares, 
those who practice such things are worthy of death, that they not only do the same, they're not only involved in it, but what? They give hearty approval to those who practice them. (coughs) Now, I'm bringing all of this up because we have to understand that this is where we live. When you walk outside your door, you walk into the world system. And so it does no good to look at the temptations around us and uh, to (coughs) simply get frustrated or whine and complain about it's so hard to be pure because there's all these temptations around us and all these things. We should not be surprised at the world we live in. We live in a fallen world system that's trapped in this cyclical pattern of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And so it should not shock us when you turn on the news and the latest headline is something about transgenders or homosexuality and these things. And we're thinking, has the world gone mad? Well, yes, in a sense, but not not unexpectedly so. It's right here on the pages of Romans 1. This is what happens. For me, it, it helps me take heart because I realize this is, this is not unexpected. This is not outside the realm of what God has, has told us. This is exactly what he told us to expect, that we live with a real enemy, Satan himself, and we live in a fallen world system. And so now that we know the enemy that we face, we can get busy with the mission that God has given us of walking in purity and preaching the gospel. I think a lot of Christians get confused because they see the world around us. They see Romans 1 taking place. And they think, okay, what we need to do is reform the culture, right? We need, it. We need to get America back. We need to get America back to, to the 50s or to, to, to whatever it was or back to the, to the original formers of our, of our Constitution. Um, that's not our mission. That's likely not going to happen, for one. Um, and I love the United States like anybody else. But our mission is not to save America or to change our culture Our mission is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God will save people, those who are His. And yes, that may have an effect on the culture if God saves a a large percentage of them, but that's not our ultimate aim, cultural change. I would say that's probably the most common in in my world right now, the Mm -hmm. most common conversation in witnessing is they want to save America. That is coming up all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's an opportunity. Yeah, it is an opportunity. Because a lot of folks that are saying, some of them are Christians, but a lot of unbelievers who are just conservative will say, well, what's happened to our country? It's just gone to pot and we need to save our culture. And it's a, great, uh, it's a great segue to turn the conversation to them because the reality is, yes, our culture is in sin, but they individually are in sin. And the bigger issue is they need salvation from God's wrath over their sin, not just our nation, right? So that's a great point, Preston. But I think it's good for us as, look, it's, there's nothing wrong with, and I didn't intend to go into this this morning, but there's nothing wrong with enjoying our country. We, we've been very blessed to be here and to be in this country. And I don't want it to blow up and, and all of our freedoms to go away either. I, I don't want that. But we're not here for that primarily. That is not why God put us on the planet to protect this country that we've been blessed to live in. It's to preach the glories of Christ. That's why we're here. So we can't get off track on that issue and we can't be surprised when the world acts like the world. Why would we expect the world to be any different? But here's our great comfort, men. I came back to this in my mind. Yes, there is an enemy. He is in the world. He's driving the bus of the world system. But what does John tell us, the Apostle John in 1 John 4? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 1 John chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 1 to 6. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 
They're, they are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us, and by this we know the, fruit, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So we see that idea of the spirit of error in our culture, of the culture is willing to embrace any kind of outlandish idea as long as it's not the true gospel of Jesus Christ or what the Bible says. And that's, that's to be expected, John says. But we don't have to lose heart or be discouraged even as we become more and more the minority because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Now, that brings us to the third and final enemy, and this is the one I wanted us to camp out on. Because of the three enemies we face, this one is, is the most deadly and the, and the most uh, behind the scenes that we're tempted to overlook. We know the devil is our enemy. We know the world's fallen. But enemy number three is your flesh. Your flesh. This is the traitor inside. Uh, and th- this is the battle that we face 24-7, seven days a week. Now, I want to look at two passages to discuss the issue of the flesh. And the first one is Paul's own description of the battle with the flesh in Romans chapter 7. <clears throat> Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. Now, in your Bible, in my Bible, the, it has a heading there, which is not inspired, and it's added later. It says, the conflict of two natures. I actually don't like that at all. I, I don't, the side note, but the Bible talks about the fact that our, our nature, our old nature is dead and gone. We don't have the old man and the new man battling it out. What we have is a new man, a new nature, battling our flesh, that part of us that is yet to be redeemed, that will be redeemed when Christ returns. And, I'm sorry, Romans say again. Yeah, Romans 7, beginning of verse 14. So we're going to read 14 to 25. Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against this law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Now there are some, there's some opportunities to get confused in there just because he goes back and forth with his language so many times. But really the concept that he's saying is one that's very familiar to us if you're in Christ. And that's that's really not that difficult to understand. He's explaining this battle that we all have with the flesh. Why is it that even as a Christian, you struggle with sin? How come, even though you love Jesus and, and you want to follow Jesus, you still find yourself having to repent to God and others on a frequent basis because you fall into sin? Well, that's what Paul is describing here. And he's he uses the word law several several times. But really it comes down to this, the flesh versus this new man that he is. And really that's, that's what we're experiencing on the inside of us, is this, this conflict. It's a civil war, if you will, inside of us of the new man that we are in Christ. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed, old new things have come. So we, we, are, we are brand new, a new nature that's ready and excited to serve God, that reads the Bible and our hearts resonate with the truth. And yet at the same time, we're still tempted towards sin. 
And there are times when, like we've been talking about on Sundays, we want to put back on those old clothes and take on some of the actions and dispositions that we had as an unbeliever. And we've got to fight that and put that off and put on righteousness. Why is that? It's because until Christ brings us home or returns, we're in this, this, this state of war, settled war with our flesh, that part of us that still is yet to be redeemed. God will give us a new body and that's completely new and fit for eternity, that's righteous, that matches our new nature when, we, when he brings us to himself. So we don't have this internal war. But until then, this is the state that we're in. And I think this is the battle that we have to be the most on guard against because the flesh is inside of us. It's not, we understand external temptation. When there's, when there's something that I, that I shouldn't do and it's out here and it's calling me, I understand, okay, that's bad. I don't need to do that. It's, it's a sometimes more subtle and more difficult to recognize when it's inside of you and something pops in your mind that you could do or think about or say. It seems to come from, from me. And so it doesn't seem external because it's coming from inside of me. And yet it is still just as deadly, if not more so, than Satan himself dangling something in front of us. He, he says <coughs> here at the end, and this is what I want to get to, is that You've probably had days, if you're fighting your sin at all, where you get home and you're just worn out from the internal battle with sin, particularly if you're really trying to put off and put on and you're bringing the scripture to mind and you're, you're trying to do your level best to change a certain pattern of behavior. It can be really exhausting because it's just all day, every day. And so you think, man, am I ever going to be free of this? This is just, this is, this is a terrible existence. Well, Paul says the same thing. He says, wretched man that I am. It's almost like he keeps going back and forth. I want to do this, but I keep doing that. And I know I'm new, but I still have these desires. You can see him going back and forth. And it's like it comes to a boiling point and he just says, wretched man that I am. I mean, I'm such a sinner. And then in desperation, he says, who will save me from this body of death? Who will free me from this internal battle, this, this, this war that's going on within me? And then he answers the question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. God has not left us. Yes, sometimes the battle is intense. Some days it's worse than others. Some seasons it's worse than others. But we have on our side God through Christ working within us. Remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, for I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Listen, God is more concerned about you growing in, in holiness than you are. And so if you're putting forth your maximum effort, how much more effort is God through the Holy Spirit putting forth on your behalf that you might be conformed to the image of Christ? And so yes, the battle is long, the battle is tough, some days more than others. But God is on our side. We do not have to despair because there is real victory available in that battle, though it may be difficult, through the help of our Savior. Now, with that in mind, I want us to finish with this passage in James chapter 1 because James chapter 1 explains for us in such good detail what happens when we are tempted to sin, particularly with the flesh, from the inside. What's going on when that takes place? And um, I've walked through this with you before. It's been a long time ago now. But this is such a key concept that I want us to return back to this idea. So this is James chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 13. Real quick context. The, book, the, the first chapter of James, he's been dealing with the issue of, of trials, trusting God, joy in trials. And so he's going to talk about the unique trial of temptation. Trial, temptation can be a trial when we're pre presented with something. And how do we respond to that? And how do we think about temptation in that context? So James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. 
simple verses here, and yet there's so much profound truth packed into this. The first thing that he wants us to understand is that when we think about temptation, we have to understand that God is never the source of your temptation. God will never tempt you to sin. We have enemies, but God is not one of them. That's why he says, and this is a command, by the way, let no one say, that's a command. Let no one say, do not ever say when you're tempted, I'm being tempted by God. But notice he doesn't say, let no one say if he is tempted. He says, let no one say when he is tempted. The expectation is that we will be tempted on a daily basis to sin. But the word tempted here is is actually the same word used for test uh, elsewhere in James And it can be used differently depending on the context. But here, clearly, it's an enticement towards improper behavior. It is clear from the Scriptures God does test us. He tested Abraham when he called Abraham to sacrifice his own son. He may put a test before us, but God always means a test for our good, our spiritual good, not to tempt us into sin. But we can sinfully take a test and turn it into a temptation to sin. So let no one say, I am being tempted by God. He is not the agent of our temptation. And James explains there's really two reasons why we should never blame God. First of all, God cannot be tempted. He is untemptable in that sense. God is perfectly holy. 1 Peter 1.16, because it's written, you shall be holy. Why? For I am holy. He cannot. It's an impossibility that God could be tempted by evil. But secondly... The reason we can't blame God is he doesn't tempt anybody. He himself does not tempt anyone. Since God is perfectly holy and hates sin, he would never desire for you or any one of his children to do the things he hates. And so you may read that and think, that's good, but I'm not really tempted to blame God for my temptation. But if you think about it, human beings have been tempted to blame God since the very first sin. In the garden, you remember when God comes to confront Adam and Eve, he, 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 he talks to Adam and Adam, what does he do? He blames Eve, but he doesn't just blame Eve. He blames God. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. The woman whom you gave me, God. I mean, <laughs> you put her here and uh, you know she gave it to me and I, and I ate. And so, yeah, he's blaming his wife which is bad in and of itself, but he's also pointing his finger at God. We can do that. We can blame it on our circumstances. Who's sovereignly in control of your circumstances? Right? You lose your job. You, ha- you have a difficulty. There's a, a, a woman at work, since we're in the realm of sexuality, there's a woman at work that's very attractive and flaunts that and is, is a, a source of temptation. We can get upset about, oh, I just wish I didn't work here and uh, I wish that she didn't work here. And we can blame our circumstances, but God's sovereign over all of our circumstances. So we have to be very careful that we're not blame shifting why we are the way we are or why we're giving in to certain things because of, of God or, or blaming it really on anyone else because God can't be tempted and he would never tempt us. So with that background, what is the cause? Our flesh is always the source of temptation. Our flesh is always the source of temptation. And I say always because even if Satan himself or the world system is directly involved, your flesh is always involved. The reason that when something is dangled out before us that it looks good to us is because we have a sinful flesh that desires that. So even when it's an external temptation, it is always coupled with the internal temptation that comes from the flesh. And this is how James describes this, verse 14. But each one is tempted. Each one. Notice that each of us individually is tempted. And notice the language he uses when he is carried away. Literally, it means dragged away. <coughs> this is a, a hunting term. It, it's, it's used of, of an animal that's caught in a trap. Uh, I saw this guy the other day releasing a, a raccoon down by the river, and it's it was pretty funny to take it, see it run off into the woods, and so I played it out of my head. Rocky Wyatt, if you know, remember Rocky used to put out those traps in his backyard and trophy club and catch all kinds of critters. It's that kind of idea. You put some bait in the trap, 
the animal can't resist. He goes in and he's trapped. This is, this is the word that he's using for us. He's dragged away. He's caught in a trap and dragged away, each one of us. And then he uses a fishing term, the word enticed. And that's the idea of, of a lure dangling in front of a fish, tempting it to take the bait. Each one is tempted when he is carried away, dragged away like an animal in a trap, or enticed like a fish after a lure. But for us, what is it that is the trap or the, or the enticement? His own lust. His own lust. All of those words are important. Notice, his own lust. The emphasis on this, this idea that each of us have, have certain kinds of sins that are more tempting to us than others. We, there's nothing new under the sun, so it's not that there are new temptations that we deal with that have never been dealt with. But there are certain things, just like with food, there's certain food you like more than others. There are certain sins that are more enticing to you than others. Some of us, you know, robbing a bank has never really sounded all that attractive to me. I don't, I don't really get excited about that. I don't want to go to jail. I like my family and my life. But there are other people that just, that's, they, they, they would love to do that. You know, that entices them. And some people, it's alcohol. Some people, it's sexuality, whatever it is. But your own lust, and a lust here just means strong desire in this case, for evil. Strong desire for something evil. It's not just sexual sin, but any kind of sin. But there are, the picture that he's painting is that there are inside of us, connected to our flesh, these strong desires for what's forbidden. And what happens when you sin is just like an animal tempted by a bait in a trap or a fish that's under a log watching your little lure go by. That enticement catches your eye. You have this desire, this sinful lust, and so now you have a decision to make. Now, that, that's tempting before you, and if you don't kill that sin right then, as soon as the lure or the bait is presented, then James has some very discouraging news for what happens next. That, that by the way, that, that desire within you that pops up, even if it's momentarily, to, to grab that bait is the traitor inside of you. That is your flesh. That's the part of you that still desires evil. And this is why I talk so much about sin beginning in the mind. Most of this happens without anyone else around you being aware. It's all going on between your ears. No matter what kind of sin it is, it starts with this desire that just, boop, it pops up. And that's, that's the decision point right then is, is when you've got to make the decision to put off into your mind and put on. But what happens when you don't? Well, let's keep reading the text. He, he switches from hunting and fishing illustrations to the illustration of childbirth in verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When lust has conceived. So this is the idea of, of when it reaches the breaking point. Nothing's happened yet, but picture the fish under the log and here comes your little worm coming by him. He sees the temptation, and at some point, he makes the mental decision, I'm going to eat that, right? I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going for that. That's, that is when lust has conceived. That's where you've, you've now crossed over. You haven't done it yet, but you've decided it's going to happen. So at some point, I'm going to do that. It gives birth to sin. When it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And then he goes on, when we actually do that, when sin is accomplished, you see the progression, the bait, the decision, the action. And here's the result. It brings forth death. Brings forth death. This is no surprise. God warned us of this in the garden that this would be the case. We Surely Adam and Eve didn't understand, they couldn't have understood the full weight of what that meant. But now we understand really there are three kinds of death the Bible describes. All of them as a result of sin. There's spiritual death. That is that we're born in sin, separated from God. There's physical death, obviously, of, of losing our physical lives. And then in Revelation, it talks about the second death, which is eternal separation from God in hell. It's a sobering thought when it says, and it brings forth death. Now, for the believer, don't get, don't get sideways here. I'm not saying that we are in danger of losing our salvation. I'm just saying... All, all forms of those death come from sin. For us, it's that sin separates us in our, in our intimacy with God for a time. It's like a, like a father and a son. When your child 
sins against you and disobeys, there is a, a rift relationally between you that has to be resolved and you come back together. But he doesn't ever stop being your son. That's, that's a, a better illustration for what happens when we sin against God. There needs to be repentance to resolve the intimacy in the relationship. We're not in danger of losing our adoption as sons. Now, I walked you through all of that because I think it's really important for us to understand the battleground that we live in every day from the inside out, the external temptations and the internal temptations. Because until you realize that, you're just kind of bouncing around, falling into sin, always tripping and falling on your face, not necessarily wanting to do that. You may be like Paul in Romans 7, like, I'm so tired of this. But every time I get up, I just fall right back down. Part of that is because of a lack of awareness of the enemy in the battlefield that lies around us. And so I wanted to, to set that table up so that we, when we go out of our house, really when we open our eyes in the morning to wake up, the battle begins because it's, it's here inside. And just learning to be on guard. We can't live our lives willy-nilly just reacting to things and kind of taking the day as it comes. This is why it's so important to start your day in some way, even if your primary reading time is later in the day. I would encourage you, do not start your day without spending some time with the Lord, turning your mind to truth. What else are you fighting with? That's, I mean, it's like walking into war without a weapon. And I, I always get my weapon at night. You know, I'll, I'll get it afterwards. But you, know, you need to bring your weapon to the battlefield, Right. And so get in the word and realize we are in the battle. There's no choice. There's no days off. The enemy doesn't take a day off. Your flesh doesn't take a day off. You can't take a day off. It's that deadly serious. Um, and so James, by the way, is not denying that the devil is a tempter, that the world is a tempter, but he is highlighting the reality that the only reason that those external temptations work is because... It's matched with an internal temptation to sin from the flesh. Now, I want to hear from you guys. As we think about that concept, how does it help us in the battle with sin? I've given you some hints already. But how does it help us in the battle with sin to know our enemy, our enemies? <clears throat> to know what weapons we bring. Say again? To know what weapons we bring. To, to know fight. what weapons to bring to the battle, yeah. To identify ways that he might try to tempt or attack you. Right. Yeah, identifying his methods. Yeah. I thinking about what is the area of my own desire that he's, I'm more likely to be caught mm. and make preparation. Yeah. Definitely be on, be on guard by knowing your own, uh, as he says, or those pet sins by our own lust. Yeah. To try to minimize those moments that the temptation comes. Sometimes mm -hmm. they do come out of nowhere, but sometimes we, we put ourselves in positions to make it easier for them to come. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We know how to pray against um, those things and, and have our minds set, even in our prayer time, just like, okay, Lord, give me the strength to work through this and that or whatever specifically and take it, there, take it down here um, at that level. Mm. Yeah. Understanding our the, the importance in our relationship with the world, <clears throat> you know, the necessity for fellowship, the differentiation between our friendships with non-believers and how we spend yeah. time there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Having our our closest relationships being believers, like minded believers. None of this it helps me untie that none of this is a surprise to the eye. Right. And yeah. The, even the next couple verses in James, <laughs> don't be deceived, it's all a lie to fall into it. Mm -hmm. Where does everything good come from? It comes from the Lord. So where should yeah. I be searching? Mm -hmm. The Lord. Yeah. Helps just know that the, I mean, you said our, our master is the master of the universe. Our master is Christ the King. Yeah. Yeah, it's so helpful to know. I think it helps with that concept of being in the world, not of the world. Um, because, yeah, we're living in it, but it does, we don't have to be trapped by it or affected by it in the way that the fallen, those who are in Christ are trapped in it. You know, it, it helps me just uh, on the days where the battle is, is harder than others and it seems like temptations are coming at you from just every direction to remember, you know, this is, 
the re- the reaction is not to get frustrated and to say, oh, when is this going to stop? You know, it's just it's this, this terrible world we live in. And, and that's true. But I, I don't need to be surprised. And this this is what the world does. This is the world system. That's why that billboard is there on your way to work. That's a temptation for you. It's why that... It's why the world keeps pushing fashion trends to be more and more immodest and more sexual. It's why the movies continue to go, you know, at at lower ratings, become more and more filthy. It's all part of the world system. And so it doesn't do any good for us just to get frustrated. We have to remember, of course it's this way. But I am, the one who's in me is greater than he's in the world. I'm in the world, but not of the world. And I can, by the power of the Spirit, walk in righteousness, come what may. And so it's encouraging to me to know the battlefield, um, to know where the, where the lions are. So as we close, just two admonishments. Um, one, know your enemy. You know, be on guard. Know what the scripture says about the battle that we're engaged in. And we don't have to fear because, again, we serve the God of the universe. And then secondly, fight the good fight. Fight. Fight the battle. We're in the battle. But we have to fight the battle. Don't grow weary in the battle. Don't make excuses in the battle. Stand on the word of God with the sword of the word of God and fight the battle. That has to be our resolve. If we're going to be godly men, it's one thing to know our enemy. It's another thing to engage in the battle. So next time, I've been promising you this every every time, but next time we are going to talk in detail about walking in purity and really how to how to wield, yield the sword, uh, wield the sword to, to fight the good fight. All right, well, let me pray for us and we can spend some time in fellowship. Lord God, we do ask that you would help us to be godly men who are aware of the sinful world that we live in and really what's going on both inside of us and outside of us in regards to sin and temptation. Help us not to to be naive. God, help us not to put our head in the sand or, or to give up because temptations are, are incessant and constant. And help us, Father, to stand and to stand together and to be committed to you, to your truth, to having minds filled with the truth and to being men of true purity by the power of your spirit. We ask in the name of Christ, amen.